can be seated as we pray together this morning. Father, we are so grateful for uh, the opportunity to gather this morning, to be here um, on this Father's Day. So thankful for the opportunity to hear from your word, to continue to read in the Beatitudes the ways that you have called our, our way of being blessed so long as we, we pursue those. And so I pray that you would, uh, this morning, comfort us. I pray that for all of those who are mourning, who are, uh, who are weeping for their lives, for sin, for whatever else, I pray that you would give us comfort. I pray that gospel peace would be upon us as we hear your word. I pray that you would transform us and that you would uh, shape us more into your image through, uh, through our reading and our hearing of your word this morning. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, I just want to echo and say again, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, thank you for complying uh, with all of our protocols. Um, we, it's, it's a challenge for us as well uh, to give you a glimpse of how big of a dork I am. I, I actually came up here last night and practiced with a mask on to make sure that I, I could get my breathing right and that I wouldn't strangle myself uh, when I came up here this morning. Uh, but we are continuing our study through the Beatitudes, what we have kind of titled uh, the good life, what we have uh, referred to as, as God's blessing uh, of the way of being in the world that leads to flourishing and to well-being. And this morning, we have come to Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'm not sure that a more strange, profound, true truth has ever been spoken about our suffering. And I call it strange and profound because it, it definitely inverts our expectations for uh, what well-being, for what blessedness actually looks like. It, it actually reminds me of one of my favorite uh, tools that writers use it in books and in movies. Uh, that's subversion. Uh, subversion is basically just taking your expectations for genre or for what you think that the, the book or the movie should be like and be about, and they use them against you, and it usually comes like in the form of a twist or just something unexpected. One of the, uh, one of the movies that does this the best is actually the 2001 DreamWorks film Shrek. Shrek is excellent at subversion and undermining our expectations. If you haven't seen the movie, um, it is the whole premise is based on uh, reversing our expectations of what we have from like the Disney genre and like the fairy tale type genre. And so instead of Prince Charming, like a, like a handsome Prince Charming, you get this fat, ugly, belching ogre. And instead of like the adorable, lovable animal sidekick, you get this grating, annoying, over-talkative donkey with attachment issues. And, you know, instead of going to rescue the princess out of love, uh, Shrek goes to rescue the princess uh, to get some squatters off of his land. Um, and when they go to rescue the princess, they face this uh, ferocious dragon. And instead of slaying the dragon, one of the main characters falls in love with the dragon. And then once they rescue the princess, she's not a helpless damsel in distress because she takes down an armed caravan of robbers nearly by herself. 
Then the ending, the ending is what is so great about this in the movie Shrek, because you would expect uh, Shrek to be transformed into this handsome prince that you would, you would think he should be. But instead, Princess Fiona uh, becomes an ogre like Shrek, showing us that true beauty is on the inside. And that is a lesson you might have missed if it wasn't for subversion, if it wasn't for undermining our expectations. But that's enough about Shrek. That's a lot about Shrek, um, so that'll, that'll do. Um, instead, I, I want us to, to look at that. I say all that to say that uh, just as it can be really effective to undermine our expectations for what something should be like, to help us to see things clearly, that is exactly what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes, specifically, I think, no better than in 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn. He undermines our expectations. As Jesus undermines our expectations, a lot of people have said that Jesus comes to proclaim the upside-down uh, kingdom, proclaim the upside-down world of the kingdom. And that's true, and I agree with that, but I think we could phrase it even better, because instead of Jesus just presenting to us the upside-down world of the kingdom, I think he is showing us the right-side-up kingdom. I think he's helping us to take the scales off of our own eyes through declaring things like blessed are those who mourn. He's helping us take the scales off our own eyes and see that we're in the upside-down kingdom. We're in the upside-down world. And to help us look for the right-side-up kingdom. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. And so this morning, if you've come and you are dissatisfied or you're disillusioned, with the world, and you've come to see it as fundamentally upside down, well, there's good news for you this morning. Jesus has called you blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. So as we look at this passage this morning, uh, we'll kind of see what the text says by answering two questions. Those questions are, what did Jesus mean by blessed are those who mourn, and why can Jesus say blessed are those who mourn? And then after we have answer those two questions, we'll have a few points of application for living this truth out. Blessed are those who mourn. So, our first question, what did Jesus mean by uh, blessed are those who mourn? Well, you would think it would be straightforward, I, I would think, by just taking this at face value, you would say, oh, it's just, you know, blessed are those who are upset. But there's actually a large, large, large school of interpreters who take this to mean something more like blessed are those who mourn for sin specifically blessed are those who mourn for our own personal sins so something pretty close to like repentance so blessed are those who repent and when they say that they cite isaiah 61 1 and 2 in support of that let me read that to you isaiah 61 1 and 2 says the lord the spirit of the lord god is upon me because the lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And so interpreters see uh, that resemblance there in Isaiah 61, especially that last line, to comfort those who mourn, to Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and conclude that Jesus is taking his influence from Isaiah 61, and that's what he's referring to here. 
And then they cite the context of where Isaiah 61 was written, that it was written in the exile. And they say, okay, well, the exile was caused because of people's sin. And so, therefore, when Isaiah's talking about mourning, he's talking about mourning for the sin that caused the exile. So Jesus, therefore, is talking about mourning for our sin that causes uh, our times of suffering. Well, those things are true, that our sin does cause suffering, but as you can see, that is quite a long chain to get there. Um, and any time you have to say, if this, if this, if this, if this, if this, to explain something really simple in the Bible, that's probably an indication that it, it's not quite exactly the intention of the passage. I, I think this is broader. Um, I think that mourning for sin is a perfectly good application of this, but I think Jesus is speaking to all of us who mourn. All of us who weep for the brokenness of our world. Jesus is coming to meet those who have uh, become fed up with the world, who are weeping, who are crying for the, uh, for the, for the causes for mourning, for the suffering that we experience in the world. Our world is full of injustice, death, division, disappointment, unrequited love, oppression and exploitation, poverty, weakness, embarrassment, lack of rest, disasters, terrorism, helplessness, inadequacy, regret, apathy, and on and on and on. Our world has plenty to mourn, to disillusion us, to show us that we are in the upside-down world and that Christ has come to bring to us the right-side-up world. So what did Jesus mean by blessed are those who mourn? He's referring to those who mourn for uh, the, the many uh, kinds of suffering that come upon us, including sin. Um, but why can Jesus say blessed are those who mourn? What gives Jesus the authority to say something profound? And it is profound. We would not expect anyone in our world to say blessed are those who mourn. Um, or if we told someone at work that we were suffering, we wouldn't expect them to look at, uh, look at us and say, oh, well, you're blessed. Um, that would be a strange thing for us to hear. We're not accustomed to that. We would expect our world to say, blessed are those who have it all together. Blessed are those who are not struggling. Blessed are those who, uh, who, are, who are not dealing with anything right now, who have no uh, crisis in their life. But instead, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Why can Jesus say that? Well, I believe Jesus is saying that to help us wake up uh, from our own uh, sleepwalking through our world. Typically, we go through our world kind of just ignoring uh, the challenges before us. We go through our world. Uh, if we deal with mourning, it's only for like two days. You know, for the worst possible things, we're, we're, we feel like we could be upset for about two days, then we just kind of... Uh, go on. We try to ignore suffering around us and generally just try to maintain the status quo, get through life, get through this week, um, and we kind of sleepwalk through the difficulties of our world. Jesus is calling us to wake up from that, to wake up from our sleepwalk and to see the suffering around us, to even see the suffering in our own lives that we would try to run from. Jesus is helping us to mourn so that we can look clearly into our world. And so, ultimately, he's calling us to wake up so that we can go find comfort. 
so that we can be healed from that, which has caused us to mourn. As we sleepwalk through the world, we're much like someone who's hungry, who doesn't even know what food is or where to find it. In fact, doesn't even know that he's hungry. Jesus is wanting us to understand that we need comfort, that we are mourning, and that we have much to mourn about. And so he is waking us up so that we can go find comfort. And the comfort that we find truly soothes. It would be strange, again, for the world to say, blessed are those who mourn. And a big part of that is because the world can't deliver on the back end. You see, there's very little that the world can offer those it causes to mourn. But Christ offers true comfort, true healing. In fact, you may be kind of iffy about those words, uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, because you think about your own experiences of being comforted. Uh, perhaps you went through something extraordinarily difficult in the last year or so, and you remember there was a lot of people that tried to comfort you, and as they did, they did it with empty words or empty promises, you know, like, it's all right, it'll all be better, this, this is all going to work out, um, and, and you hear that enough, and you almost become a accustomed to it, I think it's so empty and hollow, and I'd just rather not hear it. And perhaps you imagine something similar here, that this is just a word of, of comfort, but it's not truly available. But that's not it. The comfort that Christ bestows truly soothes, it truly transforms, it truly renews. Christ is not able just to comfort us, but to also fix that which causes us to mourn. Christ is able to give us a promise of comfort because he can truly deliver comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall find real comfort, not mere empty words. And so, why did uh, Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn? One, to wake us up, to wake us up and to help us to go find comfort. And two, once we begin to look, to find comfort that truly soothes, that truly works. And so uh, we see ultimately um, through these two questions that Jesus is meaning to say, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who have been uh, broken by our world, and to say, you shall be comforted, you shall be restored. So uh, now that we have a grasp on exactly what Jesus is saying, how do we apply it? How do we live it out? You may be thinking, uh, back when I mentioned that uh, I, I don't believe that this is just saying blessed are those who mourn for sin, you may be thinking, well, that, that makes it exceptionally difficult for me to live this out. How can I apply this? Should I just be, like, trying to find things to be upset about? Should I just be uh, weeping and mourning all the time? I don't think that's quite the case, but I think we can find some points of application to help us live this truth, this blessing out. First would be that we should see the world how it really is and really will be. We should see the world how it really is and really will be. We should have the courage to look honestly at our world, even if that means going to a place of mourning. We should look clearly at our world. As a kind of silly example of this, uh, in the TV show Parks and Rec, uh, in one episode, Ben Wyatt was fired uh, from his job, and he began to kind of spiral out. And his 
best friend, Chris Traeger, came to check on him after it had been a certain amount of time. And so when Chris goes to check on Ben, Ben is working on uh, two projects. One is this claymation video. Uh, if you've seen it, that, that should ring a bell. He's working on this claymation video that is like extremely tedious and time-consuming and is, is awful. It's truly very bad. Like It is the worst claymation you know, two seconds that you've ever seen. And the second thing that he's working on is a, is a uh, fast food calzone restaurant that uses low-fat ingredients that he is calling the low-cal calzone zone. Um, and so uh, when Chris comes and he sees Ben doing all this, of course, he's upbeat. He's like, yeah, I'm working on this. I'm working on that. He's, he's happy. But then you cut to Chris um, actually, you know, seeing these projects, and he says, Ben is terribly depressed. Um, and he's right. Ben is terribly depressed. So the rest of the episode, the rest of the episode centers around Chris helping Ben see just how depressing his life is, uh, just how depressed uh, Ben really is. And it kind of comes to a climax when Ben actually realizes it and begins to make changes to his life. Well, in a lot of the same way, we can refuse to really look at our world. We can choose to really uh, to refuse to really evaluate our circumstances because we are afraid of the pain of mourning. But I want to exhort you based on Jesus' declaration that blessed are those who mourn to pursue looking honestly at your world. I know that for many of you, um, as we've come to Father's Day today, I know that for many of you, uh, today is difficult, that it is challenging for you and it, it may be because that you have you, you've lost your father it could be that you have a, a terrible relationship with your father uh, it could be that um, you've as, as a father you look back and regret um, some of the ways that you have raised your child or, or perhaps you've even even lost a child and so father's day could be difficult for you and there's but there's also an immense pressure on you to pretend that it's not difficult um, whether you're a father or whether you're not and the day's still hard for you, there's immense pressure to be happy and upbeat and pretend that everything is okay. And, and I'm not telling you to, you know, throw a pity party, of course. But it's okay to look at your world honestly. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to be honest because Jesus has called that blessed. But we shouldn't just see the world how it really is. We actually have the courage to look at the world as it really is because we can look at the world as it really will be. We know as Christians that our world is wasting away, but the world that Christ is bringing is perfect. That all of these deficiencies now, all of these things that are causing us to mourn now, will be forever cast away and our perfect world will be inaugurated. And as such... We can look honestly at our world. We can mourn now knowing that we have the comfort of knowing uh, that our world will be perfected as Christ returns. And so we can have true comfort in the face of our mourning. We can look at the world how it really is because we can look at the world how it really will be. But we should also rethink our approach to mourning. We should rethink the role and the approach of mourning in our own lives. We, as I've said already a few times, typically avoid mourning. We don't want to deal with it. It is challenging and it's difficult. So we, we relegate it to this thing that we're forced into when we, don't, uh, when we don't have the choice. And though I don't think we should run around looking for things to mourn about, 
I think that we should not fear mourning and we shouldn't avoid it. I think typically we try to avoid mourning through two ways. One, we either fake happiness to avoid mourning or two, we fake sadness to avoid mourning. First of those, a little more intuitive, we often can fake happiness to avoid mourning. Um, this is really common in church culture, right? Um, we have this, this expectation to be happy all the time, to be joyful all the time, because if we're not, it's like we don't enjoy Jesus enough. And so we have to project happiness, we have to project joy, even if we're not feeling it, even if it's not within us, and we're actually distressed and we're actually troubled. And we do that uh, to avoid mourning. And we can even do it to ourselves. We can uh, avoid dealing with the circumstances of our life. We can pretend to be happy again and again and again. We can find endless distractions through uh, Netflix, through uh, sports, well, not now, but uh, and board games even, like video games, uh, through hobbies. We can do all kinds of things to avoid true mourning, to avoid dealing with the reality of our world. But we can also uh, fake sadness. There is a performative kind of mourning that's done to get the ear of other people. Uh, there's a kind of mourning that is not true and not real, but it's done to, uh, to get uh, sympathy from others. Um, this is my first Father's Day sermon, um, and so I'm under the impression, based on the ministry uh, experience that I've seen so far, that I have to uh, kind of like tell dads to get with it at a certain point. So uh, dads, you can do this, uh, the, faking the, sad, the faking sadness, you know, to avoid mourning, or at least the faking sadness part, um, through the infamous dad cold. Um, that's where you play up your sickness so that you can get a lot of sympathy, and uh, that's bad, and you shouldn't do it. All right, I did it. Uh, there you go, dads. There's your get with it. Um, but in all seriousness, we can kind of do that in a lot more subtle and a lot bigger ways where we play up our own experiences to, um, to get uh, sympathy, to get attention from others. And much like as Jesus talks about later in the Sermon on the Mount, um, just as those Pharisees who perform righteousness to, uh, to be seen by others, as we perform mourning to be seen by others, we'll receive comfort from other people, but that's the only comfort that we can expect to receive. So we should rethink our approach to mourning just as we should see the world how it really is and really will be. We should also rethink our responsibility to those who mourn. This one's kind of tricky, I think, rethinking our responsibility to those who mourn, because we can tend to kind of say, well, who are those who mourn? Much like we say, or the, uh, the lawyer said, uh, who's my neighbor when Jesus said to love your neighbor? And we can kind of say, who are those who mourn? So we'll just expand that like Jesus did with uh, who is my neighbor and say, well, everybody that you come in contact with that mourn. I will say we have a res special responsibility to those in our faith family that we know that are mourning. We shouldn't keep them at arm's length. We shouldn't put expectations on them that they get it together before they can join our company again, but we should come to them and point them towards the comfort that can really be found. It's okay to, to comfort them with, with things like, uh, like you're, you're strong, it'll be all right, but we should also point them towards Jesus, the one place that they can find true and lasting comfort. If we give them merely human comfort, we will have failed them if we uh, pass on our opportunity to point them towards the one who can truly comfort. 
We also have a responsibility to those who are not in our faith family that mourn. And this is, this is difficult for us because we can tend to put these people at arm's length. We can write them off as people who need a handout or people who aren't worthy of our time or attention. Even though they're mourning and they're having a difficult time and place in our world, we put them at arm's length and give them the impression that they won't find comfort with us or certainly not what we follow. And instead, I think we should go to them. We shouldn't write off those who are suffering from the coronavirus by saying that it's all just a ploy and making little of their suffering and their mourning, but take them seriously and honestly and point them towards the true comfort they can find in Christ. For those who are mourning racial injustice, we shouldn't tell them, this is not a problem for you. We've, we've come a long way. Don't worry about it. We should meet them in their mourning because they are very close to the kingdom. They're very close to finding comfort. They're aching and they're hurting. Christ has called them blessed, for they shall receive comfort. So we should think our responsibility to those who mourn. We should also take God's comfort seriously and really not hypothetically. I think we have a tendency when we hear these gospel promises like, uh, you shall receive comfort, to kind of say, okay, well, that, that sounds nice, and I, I even truly, really believe that, but when the rubber meets the road of our heart, it's not quite applied. So, for instance, when we hear things like, uh, we have a great high priest who's able to sympathize with our weakness, we say, well, that, I believe that, but, I mean, come on, Jesus can't really identify with me, not with me. And so we believe it, but we kind of, you know, believe it hypothetically. We don't believe it really in our hearts. Or we believe, um, as we'll read in a second, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. And we think, well, that's nice, but he, he's not going to really give me rest. You know, it's, it's just a, like, a, it's kind of metaphorical, you know, kind of hypothetical, and it's, it's not true and real to me. But no, it's true and real. And just like we hear, they shall be comforted, and think, Christ can't really comfort me, right? Well, no, he truly, really can, and truly, really will. We should take his words of comfort seriously and really, and not hypothetically. But our last point of application is that we should continue to mourn sin so long as we live in sin's world, but not without hope. Read that again, that's kind of long. We should continue to mourn sin so long as we live in sin's world, but not without hope. So as I said, I think mourning for sin is a valid application of this, and now we've, we've come to that. But we should continue to mourn sin as long as we live in sin's world. And of course, by saying uh, living in sin's world, I don't believe that sin has as power over God or uh, in any way. Just to say that since the fall, our world has been so thoroughly infected that the veins of sin run deep in the heart of every man. So we are all infected by the disease of sin. We are all uh, partakers of sin. We all commit sin, and so we live in a world full of sin. Sin causes us to mourn because we've offended God, because we've broken his law and the relationship that he has given to us, and that we have offended him. Just like if we uh, were to um, hurt another person, if we were to uh, sin against another person, it would break our relationship with them. In the same way, we've offended God by breaking his moral statutes, his moral laws. We have reason to mourn because we have offended God. 
but we also mourn because our sin harms other people. Um, we may slander another person, and though that person be completely innocent, they suffer because of our sin, because of our slander. Or maybe we, uh, maybe we, we steal from uh, a friend or work or something like that, and though they be innocent, they suffer because we took from them, because we sinned against them. And on and on and on, we could go with many more examples, just all of that to say that our sin is like throwing a rock in the pond with all kinds of ripple effects of suffering going towards many people. And so our sin does not merely offend God or harm ourselves, but it actually harms others, and we should mourn that as well. We should also mourn the general effects of sin on our world. As I've said, we can all, we could trace uh, all sin, or excuse me, all suffering back to the fall, even if we take a long and roundabout path to get there, uh, that, that all of the causes for suffering in our world are affected by sin. And so in sin, we have much to mourn about. We live in sin's world, and there is much to mourn about sin. But we don't do it without hope. I think the real heart of Matthew 5-4 is it feels like an invitation to me. Blessed are those who mourn. He's calling those who are mourning and weeping to him. And so we, though we mourn and we weep for sin and, and for other things, though we mourn and weep for sin, we don't do it without hope. Because Christ has borne the penalty for our sins. Christ has taken the truest amount of our suffering, the deepest cause for our mourning upon him. He mourned so that we can have comfort. He was stricken so that we could be comforted. And as we look to the solution to sin in our world, where everything will be made perfect, we're given a guarantee of that through Christ's resurrection. The fact that he lives again promises us that we too will live again and that he will make all things perfect. And the sin that we've committed, the sin of the world, will all be wiped away through Christ and his work, in his death, and in his resurrection. And so I find this to be an invitation. If you are weeping and mourning over your sin, you have the opportunity to find forgiveness. You have the opportunity to find true and lasting comfort that will truly soothe your soul. So at the end... I want to put that invitation, Christ, in another famous passage from the book of Matthew. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light.